From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Federal disaster aid is coming for those affected by the Marshall Fire. Congressman Joe Neguse, who represents the Scorched Communities, joins us to talk about who gets help. Then, how to evacuate a hospital from preemies to COVID patients. That was the challenge facing a Vista Adventist in Louisville as the Marshall Fire drew closer. If you look at an aerial shot, you're going to see fire lines all the way around the hospital. And it made it within feet of the building and within feet of a liquid oxygen tank. So when might the hospital reopen? And later, Federico Pena. His new autobiography goes beyond his time as Denver's first Hispanic mayor, beyond his stint as Secretary of Transportation, and into why, as the title says, things turned out not bad for a South Texas boy. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR a part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Federal assistance is starting to flow to communities decimated in the Marshall Fire. President Biden issued a disaster declaration over the weekend. This morning, his Department of Housing announced help was coming in the form of foreclosure relief and federally backed financing for those who rebuild. Let's talk about what other sorts of assistance will be available and the long road to recovery with Congressman Jonah Goose. Welcome, Congressman. Good morning, Nathan. What are you hearing from your constituents right now? What do they need the most? Uh, Well, first, thanks for having me on. Uh, The last several days have been just devastating for uh, Boulder County and for our community, for folks in Louisville and and Superior and in East Boulder County, unincorporated Boulder County, as we've dealt with the fallout from what we all uh, agree was an unprecedented fire that has uh, just caused so much destruction in our communities. And uh, as we now know, Many of our constituents, uh, my neighbors, uh, have lost their homes and all of their personal belongings and and are now starting on that long road to recovery and and to rebuilding. Uh, We're working closely with state officials, with the governor, with the mayors of Louisville and Superior, our county commissioners, and, of course, federal officials, including FEMA. Uh, The administrator was here uh, just over the weekend to tour the damage and see it firsthand herself to make sure that there's a penalty of federal resources and state resources available to folks. Uh, and I would certainly encourage anyone who was impacted by the fire, if they lost their home or if their home was damaged. Now, there are thousands of homes that, in fact, uh, have damage that will uh, ultimately need to be repaired uh, to go to the Disaster Assistance Center, uh, which has been opened in Lafayette. Uh, it's open every day, seven days a week. Uh, and there are a wide array of different governmental entities, including our office, but as well as the Division of Insurance, various insurance companies that uh, Uh, provide homeowners insurance, of course, and and that uh, homeowners will need to uh, work through and navigate. Uh, We're ultimately here to help and here to help our neighbors get through this really difficult time. And and this is going to affect housing in an area that is already crunched. You know, what can the federal government do to relieve that burden? We know there's foreclosure relief and federally backed financing already coming in. Yes. So there's a couple of things. Uh, You know, first, we were grateful that President Biden granted uh, the major disaster declaration, or rather issued that declaration uh, on such short notice. Uh, He did so verbally on Friday, 
uh, with uh, during his conversation with Governor Polis and in follow-up conversations with FEMA uh, that day, myself, Senator Bennett, and other members of our delegation made clear that individual assistance had to be part of the equation. And we were grateful that on Saturday, uh, the president's declaration did, in fact, include individual assistance programs. What that means as a practical matter is that individuals can apply uh, online at disasterassistance.gov for temporary uh, short-term reimbursements uh, for housing costs, uh, hotel costs, as folks uh, you know, look to, to secure short-term housing. We're working with a variety of different housing providers in the community uh, to provide resources to those who are looking for more long-term uh, housing. But as you said, uh, the market here in Boulder County uh, was already uh, incredibly competitive, and uh, this is clearly going to exacerbate those challenges, uh, but we are committed to doing everything we can to ensure that uh, the families uh, that have been so lucky to call Boulder County home, as my family has, uh, ultimately remain a part of this community. So you're talking about short-term relief for hotels and things like that. What what else can people have right now because they're desperately needing these things? Well, so I would encourage folks to go online to our website at nagoose.house.gov backslash Marshall Fire Resources. There they can find uh, a list of a variety of different long-term housing options. Uh, we are working closely with FEMA. FEMA has a team on the ground now doing assessment damages, and the hope is that at the conclusion of that process, which will likely be the end of this week uh, or early next week, uh, we can apply for further uh, federal relief in the f- form of, for example, modular housing, which has been an option uh, that has been provided in the wake of other devastating megafires like this one. Uh, many of your listeners may recall the fires in Oregon, for example, last year uh, and the disturbing images there. That would provide a much more long-term benefit to uh, the residents who have been displaced as we work to rebuild these homes, uh, which will take time. Uh, Congressman, the, the cause of this fire remains unknown. Have you been asked for more federal assistance in the ongoing investigation? Uh, I have not. I've certainly been in touch with the, the sheriff, uh, who I think has done a tremendous job. Uh, he's one of the most long-serving, uh, longest-serving sheriffs in Colorado history, Sheriff Pelley. Uh, and I know that he is working tirelessly as is his team with federal agencies. I believe uh, the ATF and the FBI. Um, I'll defer to, to him and, and to law enforcement as to whether they need additional resources. Um, to the extent that they do so, of course, we will stand ready to uh, make that request of uh, the federal agencies. We've been in touch, of course, with the Department of Homeland Security as well as with the White House. Uh, repeatedly over the course of the last 96 hours. And so uh, stand ready to make a request of that nature if, in fact, it's necessary. The effects of climate change were a large reason for this. A very wet spring caused a lot of fuel growth, then a dry fall and winter uh, created the conditions that led to this fire. With the Build Back Better bill on hold for the foreseeable future, how can Congress mitigate the effects of climate change right now that caused this fire? I mean, that is to say, even with the snow we've had, parts of Colorado along the Front Range are still in drought conditions. This could happen again. Well, you're precisely right, Nathan. Um, and I think you articulated well the, the, the crisis that has befallen our community, our state, our country, and really our planet. Um, you know, Colorado is no stranger to wildfires. Of course, as you know, we have spoken with you previously last year when the largest and second largest wildfires in the history of Colorado, both raged simultaneously in my district, in northern Colorado, uh, Larimer County and Grant County to the west. Um, Both of those fires were upwards of 200,000 acres uh, burned in our state, tragedy in multiple communities. And yet this fire was uniquely destructive, a fire of only 6,000 square feet, uh, but that has been classified as the most destructive fire in the history of our state. And that is because 
It raged through suburban neighborhoods, uh, the majority of which are not in the WUI, the, the wildland urban interface. And while some have described it as a wildfire, I, there's a, a climate scientist in Boulder who uh, coined the term urban firestorm. And I think that is a far better hmm. description of uh, the Marshall Fire. And clearly, as you said, when you have the driest and second warmest fall in 150 years, uh, this you know you have a confluence of factors uh, that climate scientists have warned about for a long time. Our office has been passionate about this issue. I serve on the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, and I'm the only um, member from the Rocky Mountain region on that committee, and have spent uh, you know hour after hour imploring my colleagues uh, that we have to get serious about climate adaptation, resiliency, mitigation, and ultimately fighting climate change. Uh, as you said. The Build Back Better bill uh, remains pending in the Senate. I'm certainly doing everything I can. I've heard yeah. from many senators, uh, to be frank, over the course of the last several days from outside of our state and uh, who have offered their assistance. And I've said to them that one thing they could do to make a huge impact here would be to pass that bill and to ultimately ensure those climate investments get across the finish line to protect communities like ours in the future. I think there's also a question of our infrastructure here. Everything seems to be very interconnected. I mean, as the fires were happening in Boulder County, Excel had to cut power elsewhere in our state to conserve resources. Do you think this is part of an outdated system and how this is all linked together? Well, look, I certainly think obviously urban development and where development happens is a part of the larger equation. But it's important to remember uh, that some of these communities, you know, Old Town Superiors existed for over 100 years, right? That we know that the reality of what propelled this fire were those hurricane winds and incredibly dry conditions in our state, the latter of which uh, we know are exacerbated by climate change. So if we want to ultimately address this problem uh, in the long term, it means getting serious about fighting climate change. It also means uh, doing more resiliency and mitigation work as it relates to fires in communities that are alongside the WUI, which is something uh, our office is, is very passionate about and, and working closely with state officials on. So, of course, federal help is on the way. We talked about that. Of course, the Build Back Better bill. I, I want to turn now to the anniversary of the Capitol insurrection, which will be in two days. As the year has gone by, has your thinking changed about that day? Uh, my thinking hasn't changed. Of course, I you know January 6th was a traumatic day for our country and uh, for our republic. I was in the House uh, chamber that day. I was on the floor uh, advocating for the certification of the uh, the electoral college vote, and uh, certainly you know, my memories that day will stay with me the rest of our lives, uh, the rest of my life. I think that the lesson from that day that I took uh, was, you know, at four in the morning, standing alongside my colleagues as we returned to the floor and ultimately successfully certified the election and ensured that the peaceful transfer of power that has existed since you know, for the better part of the last 232 years since the days of George Washington, would remain intact. Uh, my fear is that the lies and misinformation and disinformation that propelled those events and uh, on January 6th have only metastasized since then. And uh, that, that concerns me. I think it should concern every American who cares about the rule of law and our ability to continue functioning as a constitutional republic for generations to come. So, so briefly, before we wrap up, what can Congress do uh, with that you say happening? I mean, how do you respond to well, that? Well, there are a couple of things we can do. First and foremost, we can ensure that the select committee on January 6th uh, finishes its work, which it, it is poised to do in the coming months and shares of the report with the American public, uh, getting to the truth of what happened on that day and providing recommendations 
to the broader Congress about ways to enact safeguards to protect our democracy in the future. One reform that I am particularly interested in and working with my colleagues on, Representative Raskin and um, Zoe Lofgren, a chairwoman of the House Administration Committee from California, is reforms to the Electoral Count Act, uh, which is an archaic law uh, passed in the 19th century uh, that governs the way in which the House of Representatives and the Senate certify the winners of uh, a presidential election and a law that was, uh, you know, the former president attempted to weaponize uh, to ultimately disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. I think it's worth, it's important for us to reform that law going forward so that what happens on January 6th last year never happens again. Congressman, have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Congressman Jonah Goose represents Colorado's 2nd Congressional District, which includes the areas most affected by last week's wildfires. just didn't know if a Vista Adventist hospital would survive the Marshall Fire, so everyone had to be evacuated. But the Louisville Hospital, with 114 beds and more than 600 staff, is still standing, although it's been closed in recent days. A Vista CEO, Isaac Sendros, spoke with my colleague, Ryan Warner. We are recording this interview on Monday afternoon. Any more specifics on when a Vista might reopen? As you can imagine, there's a significant amount of work that needs to be done in remediating from smoke damage. On top of that, we just got natural gas back today. We're without potable water until, I believe, January 9th. And then on top of that, we have the smoke remediation. So we have crews uh, that are on site and testing air quality. We have an industrial hygienist. The air quality is getting better. But you can imagine it's quite a process to get a hospital back up and running. The air quality indoors, you mean to say? That is correct. Uh Uh-huh. The facility is indeed still standing, but that was almost not the case. How close did the fire come? The the fire completely surrounded the hospital. If you looked at at an aerial shot, you're going to see fire lines all the way around the hospital. And it made it within feet of the building and within feet of a liquid oxygen tank. That would have turned the situation into... um, you know, situation none of us want to ex- ever experience. A, a literally explosive situation at that point, if it would have happened. That is correct. What prevented it from coming closer? Is it happenstance? Was it firefighters? Do you know? So we're a faith-based organization. I can't see it any other way than a miracle and divine intervention because it, it defied logic. You know, the, the winds were running at 100 miles an hour. And the fact that it stopped the way it did when it did, there's no other way to really look at it, in my perspective. We certainly know that fires can burn in a mosaic pattern. We've seen neighborhoods in which some homes are destroyed and others are left standing. I don't say that by any means to dismiss your faith perspective, but only to add that the science might exist in concert with that. Uh, but that is to yeah, say... And, and Ryan, and yeah. Ryan I'd, li- I'd like to add to that. You know, it's, it's a delicate balance because our neighbors have lost so much. And these are people we've been caring for in this community for over 31 years. And we've been in Boulder County for 125. So we're deeply embedded in this community. And we don't take lightly that what we experienced was not the experience of those around us. And we're very sensitive to that. And what do you see when you look out the windows of the hospital right now? Um, 
I will I will paint the picture I saw on Friday when I came. Right now, you know, obviously we we received ten inches of snow the other day. Mm-hmm. When I pulled up um, to the hospital on on Friday for the first time, the neighborhood behind us was um, still smoldering. The fires were were just starting to settle. Um, the smell of smoke in the air was thick. It was total devastation. It was total devastation. And then you start to look at the fields behind the hospital. Everything was charred. It was a hellscape. I mean, it really sounds like a hellscape. Very much. All right. I want to talk a little bit about what it means to evacuate a hospital. Certainly your staff are used to emergencies and to triage. But take me through how you clear a hospital of patients and staff. And you had to do so quite quickly, didn't you, given the speed of these fires and the ferocity? Yeah, first, I I need to give credit to our director of quality over our facilities. You know, she knew there was fires in the area, started smelling the fire, went up on the roof and began to see, okay, the winds are actually not moving north. They're moving east. And that's when the decision was made to open up our command center. East towards the the hospital, that is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And from the moment we open up the command center to the time the last patient was gone, it was two hours that we evacuated the hospital. So standing up a command center is the first step, I guess. And is that where decisions are being made of who to move first and how? Yeah. So, Ryan, I was off-site that day. I was taking a couple days with my family for the New Year's. I was in the area. So we opened up a, a Zoom line uh, for the command center. So as I'm I'm driving to Louisville with my family, you know, we're making decisions as we go. We had our emergency preparedness lead that was in constant communication with Boulder Emergency Command, as well as the, the local EMS, the transfer centers for the hospital transfer centers were key in getting us resources. Because the point is, it's not just about getting people out, it's where are you taking them to? Yes, we were able to evacuate all of our patients between two sister hospitals here at Centura. We were able to send them to Longmont United up in Longmont and then St. Anthony's North in Westminster. Who are the first patients out the door? And let me just note that in your press release about this event, you make particular mention of clearing the neonatal intensive care unit I think of the infants, uh, especially vulnerable. Yeah. So were they first in triage or what? Absolutely. Our priority is always going to be to get the babies out first. Um, we were able to, to do that, transfer them to St. Anthony's North. Then from there, we prioritized our ICU patients as well as our OB mothers with babies. To move babies back to the neo natal intensive care unit, some of those babies would presumably be maybe in incubators, right? Yeah. So this was not just like care, was it also moving equipment with patients? Absolutely. You had to transport the babies, you had to communicate ahead of time what the needs are, um, and ambulances were showing up that were able to facilitate the needs of each patient. So ambulances were key to this, that was how you conveyed most Absolutely. of the patients? Absolutely. Yeah, Ryan, I, I can't stress this enough. You know, in, in the local fire department, they had crews working on fighting fires, and then they had people on site helping us with the process to evacuate. So it, we, we cannot thank the fire department enough. And then I'm thinking of your staff. They presumably live in or near these communities. And yeah. 
they are perhaps contending with their own emotional lives of, of homes potentially lost. What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, Ryan, I'm, I'm getting chills, um, you know, with the question. We had um, 116 of our associates that were in the evacuation zone. We had a handful, um, 12 associates and another eight providers that are on our medical staff, physicians or other clinicians that were on our medical staff uh, that lost their homes in the fire. Now, one story I have, you know, we had a nurse manager. Uh, she was working that day and she lives here in Louisville. And she was key and instrumental in evacuating these patients. There is a high probability that her home was in the line of fire. And there is a, a chance that she was going to be without a home when this is all said and done. What she showed to me that day was being able to care for others and put the needs of those that you signed up to care for first. It was one of the most selfless things I've ever experienced. And she did lose her house. And she is currently staying with a coworker. Will she have some time off? Absolutely. Centura has created teams that are taking care of these individuals with resources. And there's been an outpouring of support from the community that, you know, it, it is humbling, Ryan, to see just the outpouring of support. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is the CEO of Avista Adventist Hospital in Louisville, which was spared just barely in the Marshall Fire and which had to evacuate its entire patients, population, and staff. Uh, the CEO is Isaac Sendros. I have to think that all of this is happening against the backdrop of COVID and the stress that that has placed on healthcare workers, as you're in this very kinetic and chaotic environment, you have to be thinking about Omicron and transmission. Can you just talk to me about how COVID complicated this logistically and maybe kind of psychologically? I can't say COVID complicated anything. We have processes and these are the processes we've been living for the last two years. Yeah, everyone's wearing the proper PPE during even a crisis. We did have a few patients that were COVID positive that were on ventilators that we had to transport. We followed the process where the caregivers that transported them were driving the appropriate gear. The ambulances that were picking them up were made aware just like they would on any other transfer. And we followed all the safety protocols. All in two hours, just to remind people. Yeah. And this is, you know, we had to evacuate the ICU within five minutes because there were flames outside the window. The ICU is in the span of five minutes? Yeah. And we had to to transport it to another unit. Within the hospital before clearing it? That is is correct. So there was movement within the hospital away from the fire, and then there was, after that, movement away from the hospital entirely? Absolutely. How are you doing? Your home was spared, I gather? Yes, yes. I was not in, in near, the, I don't live near um, a Vista. Okay. And, and um, yeah, what's your state of mind? The, the day of, you, you're, you're proud and you're kind of in, in shock. You wake up the next day, you start to realize kind of what happened. And then you kind of work through this and it, it hits you in waves. This morning, I read a story about a patient that was mid-delivery, giving birth. They had to be evacuated. From your um, hospital? From our hospital. That is correct. And I, I read the article and it, I, it brought back tears. 
because of just how proud I was of the team. So it hits you in waves. There's days where I'm good. And then there's moments where I'm not. Um, but you know, Ryan right now is, as as a leader, I process that and, you know, I still have a, a job to do. I have to make sure we get this hospital up and running as quickly and safely as we can. And then there's also the side of it where you need to take a moment and check on how everyone else is doing. Um, Cause this was a, a, a traumatic situation for all that were involved. And even for those who weren't involved, this is our work community. These are the people we care for every day. What did you learn from this experience that you can do better, that you can apply to, uh, heaven forbid, a next time? You know, Ryan, I, I, I thought through that same question before. And you know what I tell you, the more I peeled it back, whether I would have done something differently, those are just details. The outcome would have been the same. Um, I will tell you, when, when I left um, the hospital around 430, I forgot when it was, but when I, when I left it, looking back at the smoke and the fire everywhere, not knowing whether or not we're coming back to a hospital the next morning. Um, and when I came back the next morning and it was standing, um, there is meaning and purpose to the work that we do. And to me, that solidified our purpose and meaning within this community. And I can't wait to get back into taking care of this community. Before we go, what a strange sensation it must be right now to be in a hospital void of patients. Yeah. Is that a strange feeling? Yeah. It was strange walking through the hospital Thursday. Um, I, my, myself, um, my facilities director, um, and a few of our facilities personnel were the last to leave. I walked every inch of the hospital to make sure um, everyone was gone. Walking through the hospital at that moment um, was surreal. Coming back into that same environment is surreal. Isaac, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Really appreciate it. Yeah, grateful for your time, given what is on your plate right now. Now, you know, Ryan, for me, it's important to share the story of what this team did. Isaac Sendros is the CEO of Avista Adventist Hospital in Louisville, which was spared the worst of last week's Marshall Fire. Sendros spoke with Ryan Warner. As students prepare for a new semester, COVID-19 numbers are once again on the rise, thanks to the Omicron variant. While the strain is more infectious, pediatricians still prefer kids be in the classroom. We do really strongly support kids being in school. We know that that's really the best place for them from a, a learning perspective and likely from a mental health perspective. And so we really we, we want we want kids to be in school if, if at all possible, but we want that to be as safe as possible. And so from that standpoint, we want to really strongly encourage that all kids be vaccinated, but we still strongly encourage uh, the wearing of masks and in indoor public spaces that includes schools. And then I think the, the state here, as well as other places that have, have um, enacted more of a test to stay program. So really aggressive testing uh, to keep kids who are positive um, out of schools or kids who are symptomatic out of school. So I think uh, we have to really you know, up our game in terms of our public health measures in order to keep our schools a safe environment for our kids. That was pediatric infectious disease doctor Sam Dominguez on Monday's show. CPR's Paolo Schultzita is here to talk about how the new strain will affect the new semester. Welcome, Paolo. 
Hey, Nathan. This time last year, a number of schools started the semester remotely because cases were at an all-time high, and we're nearing those highs again in Colorado, and the nation as a whole just set a record for daily cases. Will we see the same thing as the new semester starts this week? Likely not, Nathan. Uh, I've reached out to several school districts, mainly the state's largest ones, who are usually the ones that take extreme action in response to COVID-19. Those who answered me said schools will be back to in-person learning as planned this week. And I haven't seen news from any other district about temporarily going remote. So they'll be back in class, but will there be additional health precautions in place? No, it will be the same precautions in place as last semester. Mm. In fact, I would even say some are relaxing their precautions this semester. Uh, Denver Public School says they will be revising their quarantine isolation protocols to match new CDC guidance. Uh, Students who test positive or are exposed to the virus will have to stay home for five days instead of 10. Five days instead of 10. What are the other health precautions going on? Well, depending on your school district, uh, students and staff may be required to mask. However, some districts like Colorado Springs 11 ended their student mask mandate last semester. In addition, some districts may be offering regular free testing to students. But again, it depends. Plenty of districts opted out of the state's student testing program, either foregoing testing completely or setting up their own partnership. And I probably sound like a broken record, but once again, depending on your school district, there may be a vaccine mandate for staff. There isn't a centralized approach by the state to this, so it's difficult to answer this succinctly. We'll also see college students swarm back to the state this month. How are things looking for universities? Largely, the state's major universities are committed to starting the semester in person. They feel like they've earned it thanks to their high vaccination rates among students and faculty. The University of Colorado Boulder and the University of Denver are the only ones to announce temporarily remote learning. CU only reversed their decision to stay in person after the Boulder County fires. Something that's still up in the air is whether students with a vaccine mandate will also be required to get their booster shots. All right. Thanks, Paolo. No worries. That's CPR General Assignment Reporter Paolo Schulzida. When we come back, I'll chat with former Denver Mayor Federico Pena about his new autobiography, Not Bad for a South Texas Boy, A Story of Perseverance. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The state transportation agency could divert money from roads to clean transportation projects like public transit and pedestrian and bike infrastructure. We're going to set a national standard on one of the key components of how to reduce greenhouse gases. But not everyone is on board. We are outside field workers and need I-25 access. We cannot use mass transit. Greener transportation or not. Read the story at CPR.org. When you hear the name Federico Pena, a few things might come to mind. Denver's first Latino mayor, former Secretary of Transportation and Energy under Clinton, or maybe just that guy the road to DIA is named for. But his new autobiography, Not Bad for a South Texas Boy, A Story of Perseverance, goes beyond those notable achievements. We learn of how he forged a path forward despite racial and cultural prejudice and get the inside story on some key parts of Denver's history. Secretary Pena, welcome to the program. Good morning, Nathan. Uh, Nice to talk to you. This book takes us through key stages of your life, beginning with your youth in Brownsville, Texas in the 50s and 60s, right on the western Gulf Coast on the border with Mexico. You were raised in a tight-knit Catholic family, conservative, as you put it in the book, and throughout you mentioned the strong bond you had with your family. Give us a brief taste of your youth in Brownsville. 
Well, back in those days, and to some extent today, South Texas was one of the poorest counties in the country. In fact, I think the three or four counties in that part of Texas continue to be some of the uh, poorest counties in the in the country. But Brownsville was about a 90% Latino population, uh, highly Catholic, uh, very working class, a border town. I could literally walk across town and cross the bridge into Matamoros, which was part of Mexico, but we were also on the on the Gulf. So the bottom line for me was I always felt isolated in South Texas. I was isolated from the rest of the state, isolated from the nation, and we almost felt as if we were in a different part of of the world. Um, But nevertheless, I had a very strong family. My parents were wonderful. Uh, My father worked very hard. My mother basically raised six children after Mm -hmm. I was born, the third oldest. We had, my mother had triplets. Uh, So it was in that context because a very strong family upbringing that I was able to persevere as I describe in my book and overcome a number of obstacles. And that's really a message that I want to deliver to so many people today who sometimes feel overwhelmed uh, by challenges or obstacles in their life. I mean, what are some of the obstacles that you faced in Brownsville? Um... Well, there was a sense that even though uh, Brownsville was 90% Latino, uh, generally speaking, and and this is a long time ago, this is back in the 1950s, 1960s, um, Latinos were still not the top business people in the community, the top political leaders, the top civic leaders. Uh, There was a very subtle undercurrent, at least from my perspective, of some kind of discrimination against many Latinos, particularly if you were low income. And that was something that continued uh, from, as I describe in the book, the the Mexican-American War, uh, where Texas was part of Mexico until that war. And so many of the Latinos who were who remained in Texas uh, were not as successful as others, and that kind of continued for certain decades. It's much different today in Brownsville, but that was the case back then, and I sort of sensed that, and I felt that. And so when I left Brownsville and, and went to uh, Austin, to University of Texas, I was exposed to the real world, as we say, because <laughs> uh, Austin was very different than Brownsville. Uh, in fact, the University of Texas the student population was larger than the population of, of Brownsville. And of course, there were very few minorities and very few Latinos attending the University of Texas. So that was a whole new experience for me and presented a number of other obstacles. Yeah. And, and speaking of those those cultural insensitivities you, you, you had in Brownsville because of your Hispanic heritage, for, for example, the Catholic school you attended, your name, Federico, was changed to Fred. A- at the time, did you fully understand why they were changing your name? No, I did not. And, and that happened to so many of my friends. So if you were Roberto, you became Bob. You know, if you were Federico, you were Fred. If you were Jose, you became Joe. It, it was sort of accepted. We never really appreciated what was happening to our language and to some extent our culture. And it wasn't until later in life as I grew and matured and I experienced similar things at the University of Texas that I reflected back on what had happened to me as a young person. And that affected my attitude and my interest in not pursuing traditional law, and we can talk about that when I graduated from law school, but becoming a civil rights lawyer, defending the rights of people who were underprivileged, who were low income, uh, who were facing institutional discrimination back in those days. So in a very subtle way, that experience in Brownsville affected my professional 
and finally my political life years and years later, but I didn't realize it until I was much older. Yeah, and that that part of this, your story really hit me especially hard. Uh, my own name was changed twice from when I was a foster child in South Texas as a baby. I was called Freddie, Well, my birth name was Fernando, to, of course, today my name is Nathan. Uh, it, it seems this kind of shared experience feels like a part of Hispanic history and culture that hasn't been widely told before. That's right. And there are more and more books that are coming out today, thankfully, uh, for example, uh, telling the real story of what happened at the Alamo. Uh, <clears throat> as a young man and as a Texan, you were told certain things about the Alamo and the, quote, heroes of the Alamo and the atrocities of Santa Ana, the general from Mexico. But when you dig into new books that have been released, uh, the real history is now coming out. And we need more of that. Uh, I talk in the book about the fact that as a young person in Brownsville, if you traveled from Brownsville, let's say, north to San Antonio or wherever, you always had to go through checkpoints. <clears throat> and right. these were border patrol crossings. They would stop your car. They would ask everybody in the car if you were an American citizens. And as a young man, that frightened me. Um, and it was interesting to learn that apparently you had similar experiences. Others True. have, but we never talked about it. We just assumed that was the way of life. It was not till later that I asked myself, well, if I lived in Houston or Austin or Dallas, I would never experience that. Why was it that this heavily Latino community in South Texas had to undergo those checkpoints anytime you left South Texas, 20 or 30 miles outside of Brownsville? Those were the subtle kinds of things that happened to me as a young person that I didn't appreciate at the time as much as when I was an adult. Right. And now and I can talk feeling... about it and write about it in the context of American history and Texas history. Right, right. Well, it's that feeling of otherness that, that comes out over and over again, you know, having to prove yourself, having to hold yourself to a higher standard, you know, proving that your family was American when, in fact, your family had been living on American soil before it was American soil, right? That was the great irony. So on my mother's side, um, the person who founded Laredo, Texas in 1755, uh, Colonel Tomas Sanchez, is my fifth great-grandfather. And my family, through my mother's side, fought in the Civil War. <clears throat> Santos Benavides was the highest ranking Latino in the Confederacy, believe it or not. But all during those centuries, uh, my family were ranchers, farmers, business people, civic and political leaders, uh, military people who served in wars. I talk about my father and his two brothers who served in World War II, who received medals, and my uncle who lost a leg stepping on a mine in Germany, who fought in the Battle of the Bulge. But so many millions of Latino families in this country have been contributing for centuries in many, many ways, just like my family. And yet it's a story that's untold and it's unrecognized. And unfortunately today, there are some people who just think of Latinos as recent immigrants and there are, but they forget and don't know because our history books don't describe this. Many of us and our families are rooted in this land long before the constitutional convention uh, which established this nation. And that's a story that needs to be told, and I talk about it in my book. Let's talk a little bit about you coming to Colorado. You moved here in 1974, practiced law in South Texas for a time before that, but I find it so interesting. For a man who loves Colorado so much, you had originally thought of just spending a short time here. Why did you stay? It was pure accident. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I transferred my uh, back then, it was a fellowship that I received after law school 
uh, to the Mexican American Legal Defense Fund, which had an office here in Denver. And I did civil rights work for MALDIF, as it was called. <clears throat> I was originally supposed to go to California to work with the farm workers, but I didn't make that left turn, so to speak. Yeah. I remained in Denver and practiced law here as a civil rights lawyer. And then eventually uh, ran for the state legislature quite uh, accidentally also. And the rest, as we say, is history. So that's the, the nature of the fact that I came to Colorado. I also had my, my brother, Alfredo, who was going to law school here in Denver. So I was able to visit him when I came and eventually just, just stayed and fell in love with the state, fell in love with the people and just love Colorado. To, you know, and I've never considered any other state as my home or certainly uh, even when I came back from Washington, people thought I'd stay in DC or go to New York or some larger city. And I said, no, Denver is my home and I love Colorado. So this is where I am. Yeah. You, you write extensively about quote unquote, the system and how it was keeping those struggling down. However, you you eventually became part of the system, working with chambers of commerce and government entities to, to build change. What was that internal struggle like for you to move from that view of the system in Colorado and, and in Texas to being fully and proudly part of it? Well, that's part of the message that I have in my book. And I, I hope that people today who have lost faith in government and who feel that they're, they are powerless can learn from my experience because I did for many years uh, as a civil rights lawyer, spent most of my time suing institutions, whether they were government institutions or other institutions. And there was a, a certain amount of animosity that I had. And when I worked in introducing and, and supporting a legislation in, in the Colorado legislature as, as a young lawyer, I was surprised and amazed that the legislation passed and it opened my eyes to the fact that people in these institutions, like the state legislature, are people like me. They're human. Uh, they're not people with horns. Uh, and I think so many people who are on the outside complaining about government need to understand that it's much more effective to get involved, to be part of the solution. And yes, while it's important uh, to, to complain and to protest, uh, it's more effective to get involved. And that's what happened to me. So it transformed my, my attitude about how to bring change in, in our society. And that's how I got involved in public service and in, in, you know, as mayor of Denver and then working in Washington. And it completely transformed my life into an understanding that it's, it's not enough to be on the outside. You got to figure out a way to get involved. And that's my message to a lot of people today who feel very frustrated. Don't give up, persevere, get involved. And, and find a way to bring change in a constructive fashion. I, I want to hold on to that thought. We'll talk about that a bit more in, in just a bit. But I, I want to talk about your mayoral campaign uh, for the city of Denver, 1982. I, I mean, you were an outsider. You're from South Texas. You're Hispanic. You're, you're not that well-known by Denverites at the time. And you have this idea uh, of a campaign theme, Imagine a Great City. Talk about what you were trying to say to people in Denver with that idea who were like, who is this Federico Pena guy? The, the basic message was a sense that there was this undercurrent of discontent among so many people in Denver at that time. People like me who had come from other parts of the country, many were well-educated, professionals, but they felt frustrated. We had the brown cloud we had challenges facing the city, and we just didn't feel that city government at that time was acting boldly enough to bring change. 
And from that undercurrent of discontent and frustration, we developed this theme of, well, we can do much better. And that's when the theme of imagine a great city emerged from very close friends of mine who were advising me. And it was a message to so many people in the city that, look, we can do much better if we work together, if we believe, if we have a vision, uh, if we have great ideas, and if we simply work hard. And that was the view of Imagine a Great City. And frankly, it applies today. And, and people need to understand, and I hope they do, particularly people who have moved to Denver recently, that the city that we have today just did not accidentally occur. It is a result of 30 or more years of hard work by many, many people over the last many years who wanted to make Denver unique and better and greater. And we have done that. But now it's time to step up again because we have new challenges now in Denver and in Colorado. And I ask all the new people who have moved to Colorado to do what I did, to get involved, to figure out a way to provide new solutions so that we can move our city forward into the next decade and beyond. That's the challenge and the opportunity today. Imagine a great city, imagine a greater city is well, the way well, I would put it today. Right. And in your inauguration speech, you say, quote, what we are working toward is not the Denver of tomorrow, but the Denver of decades from tomorrow. With what you just said, looking at Denver and where it is right now, how do you think you did working toward a Denver decades from your time as mayor? Because there are some big challenges. Isn't this a city that is pushing people out because they can't afford to live here? Uh, Homelessness is on the rise. Uh, How do you think what you did back in the 80s stands today? When you look back to where we were in the 80s, Nathan, and and people need to remember that I think a year after I was elected, we went into a major recession. It was unbelievable. Our unemployment rate was 2% above the national average. We had record vacancies, record foreclosures. Almost every sector of the state's economy imploded. And so we had to claw our way out of this terrible recession. And that meant making investments, bringing so many people together, and slowly over successive administrations, followed by Mayor Wellington Webb and John Hickenlooper, all those, all those efforts over 30 years clawed our way out of that recession and built the Denver of today. But it's much different than the Denver of back then. And hmm. so we addressed a lot of the challenges. Uh, we diversified our economy. We actually cleaned up the brown cloud. When I left office, we only had one bad air day. Um, we created new employment. We built a new airport, new convention center, Cherokee shopping center, strong neighborhoods, all those things. But you're right. I mean, the cloud is back. (laughs) You have to continue to do these things. So today, you're right. We have air pollution problems. We have homelessness. We have crime. We have neighborhoods that no longer uh, provide for, for people who have lived there for years to remain in those neighborhoods. We have traffic issues. But again, it's time for people to once again get involved to solve today's problems, just as my generation did back in the 80s. So that's the nature of cities. You have to continue to invest and work. Otherwise, you drift back into uh, the kind of challenges that we're we're facing today. You were you were uh, of one of the strong mayors of Colorado. You build consensus to find compromise. Um, however, the city's current mayor, Michael Hancock, has a different structure to work in now with much more power being given to city council. With that said, could the achievements you had during your time as mayor then uh, still stand with the power structure that, that the, the mayor is seeing now? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and and remember that even though when I was elected, it was, quote, a strong mayor form of government, there were some members of city council who didn't <laughs> agree with my philosophy. And so it was a constant challenge. So, for example, when we created the historic district in lower downtown, which today many people believe has been so important to the vitality of Denver, that passed city council by one vote. One vote. <laughs> so had we not gotten that one vote at one o'clock in the morning, we wouldn't have had Lodo. Wow. So the point that I'm making is every mayor has challenges, but you have to work through them, work with city council, work with the broader community and bring everybody together to support your vision. And that's a challenge that every mayor faces, every president faces, every governor faces. But when you apply yourself and you work with people and you establish a vision, and you explain it to citizens. And I, I had countless neighborhood meetings and town hall meetings explaining why we needed a new airport, why we needed a convention center, why we needed to do certain things. People get it, but you have yeah. to take the time to explain it to people in a way that they understand because they're too busy with their lives. And, and once they do, you bring people along and you galvanize support behind Secretary, an idea. we're going to have to leave it there. So much to talk about. Secretary Federico Pena, his biography, Not Bad for a South Texas Boy, A Story of Perseverance, is out now. Pena was mayor of Denver from 1983 to 1991. And that's Colorado Matters for today with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.